Amen. Please be seated. Let us take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 17. In the book of Matthew, we are with the Lord and his disciples as they are on the cusp, the threshold of a journey that will bring them to Jerusalem. And then in Jerusalem, things will, of course, become very dark and troubled. But the journey up to Jerusalem has now begun. It began back in chapter 16, 21. It continues through chapter 20. And then from there on, much conflict in Jerusalem itself. Tonight, we have this little passage with a wonderful little miracle that is quite unforgettable. But it is all revelatory. It is all an unveiling. It's all an apocalypsis of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what his heart is for his own. His love endures. Do you know the rest? His love endures forever. You will see some of that tonight. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, help us now in the reading and preaching of your word. Help us hear. Give us ears to hear. Let us not be hearers only, though, Lord. Let us also be doers. If we find tonight, upon hearing your word, that there's something crooked in us, something broken in our love for Jesus Christ, something missing that is essential, oh Lord, we pray that you would help us be doers and go out and repent and draw near the cross altar where Christ has shed his blood for us, for all that is wrong with us. And let us look upon it with faith until we cannot come away but with joy. Help us hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 17, beginning at verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give an offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is God's word. In tonight's reading, we find strong and clear testimony as to how very good it is that the accomplishment of our redemption and the application of our redemption never had to be planned and executed by ourselves. If it were up to us, we would never have designed the great salvation we have 
And even if we somehow managed to design it right, we surely would have prevented it from being successfully executed. There's great evidence in our text for that tonight. And if we somehow managed to bring it to be successfully executed, we surely would have failed to make any good use of it. We would never have had the wisdom or the power to make any application of the redemption that had been accomplished. This, of course, all means that only God, only God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit could properly accomplish our redemption and properly apply our redemption. Now, when we speak of accomplishing our redemption, we mean the historia salutis, a little Latin phrase that's not unimportant. It means the history of salvation. The accomplishment of redemption is the historia salutis. More specifically, we mean the work Christ performed in his three offices as prophet, priest, and king. In these three offices, Christ experienced the humiliation necessary to accomplish our redemption, and he experiences the exaltation necessary to accomplish our redemption. And when we speak of applying our redemption, no longer speaking of accomplishing it, but applying it, we mean the ordo salutis, the order in which salvation has been accomplished and gets applied to each believer, one at a time. More specifically, we mean election, effectual calling, regeneration, union with Christ, justification, adoption, sanctification, and perseverance to the end. But here's the main point tonight. We are utterly inept in accomplishing what needs to be accomplished for our own redemption. And we are utterly inept in applying what needs to be applied for our redemption. The reason this comes up tonight is because of the profound disability we find in the disciples to properly hear Jesus and properly understand Jesus and properly believe Jesus and properly take courage in Jesus. A profound disability. This appears in two different incidents. First, in verse 22 through 23, Jesus tells them a second time now that he is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised from the dead on the third day. But instead of focusing on the very last thing Jesus said about his resurrection, instead of focusing upon the triumph of that last statement, the disciples focus only on the dark things he said about being betrayed and killed. The text says they were greatly distressed. Now understand, they were not greatly distressed because they were focusing on the last thing he said. They were greatly distressed because they were focusing on the first two things he said. I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to be killed. John Calvin is correct when he says, quote, their bashfulness was not altogether commendable, for it kept them in doubt and hesitation and sinful grief. That's the first incident. I'm not going to spend much time on it, but I want you to see how inept the disciples were to understand anything 
that Jesus was telling them. The second incident, verse 24 through 27, Peter is asked a question by tax collectors. They want to know if Jesus is going to pay the temple tax. They ask Peter because Jesus is staying in Peter's mother-in-law's house in Capernaum. All Jewish men over 20 were expected to pay to fund the daily sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. Exodus 30, verse 11 and following, explains this tax. Well, Peter hears the question about the tax and quickly answers yes. But when Jesus gets Peter alone in the house, Jesus confronts and corrects Peter. Because Peter's thinking about who Jesus is, is clouded again, confused again. And we may even say worldly, dense, thick-headed, dull, earthly-minded, daft. We would be no better off. (laughs) Any one of those words would be suitable for the disciples as it concerns the redemption being accomplished right before their eyes, right inside their ears, right in front of their nose. We would fare no better if we were in their shoes. Well, we would fare no better if we were in their sandals. The reason for pointing all of this out is not to scold the disciples as if they could have done better but did not. The point is they could not have done better. The point is they could only pass through the eye of the needle of redemption by the power, the help, and the mercy of God. Remember, in all the ways that matter, they were as spiritually dull as everyone else, except whenever and wherever Jesus helped them. It's very tempting to think that the disciples were like at the head of the class, or that they were chosen because they were kind of, you know, a cut above the rest. It's not true. They, in many ways, were just like that generation that the Lord brought out of Egypt. Not a good people, but the Lord brought them out because within that people, he had made a promise to a remnant that they would enter into life, and he would see to it. Same with these men. Just to prove this to you, what did our Lord Jesus say about the disciples? This, is, of course, is not the whole record, but it is the record concerning our point tonight. Matthew 17, 17. We just heard this. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Disciples are included in our Lord's rebuke and exasperation for all of those who are faithless. Mark 8, 17, he says to the disciples, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? He says that to the disciples. Luke 24, 25, after the resurrection, he says to two disciples, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, of course, dense, dull, and daft would not be suitable for the disciples if we're talking about fishing 
or boating or other skills they had and knew so well. But when it comes to their own redemption, they would never get on board, never, unless Jesus Christ reached out and grabbed them with a mighty arm and carried them up into the train of salvation, enabling them and persuading them and convincing them by his power as he led them to their seats. This is really about the grace of Jesus Christ to persist and endure and bring to completion what he found in the disciples. Unbelief, faithlessness, dullness, worldly thinking. So look more closely now at what Jesus does with Peter in verses 25 through 27. This is another one of those several times our Lord Jesus had to correct Peter, who was already to speak, who was always ready to speak quickly. Now, this is a more gentle correction than the one back in chapter 16, which was, get thee behind me, Satan. This is much more gentle, but it is indeed a confrontation. And you can see the little clue in the text that tells us that this is a confrontation. It says in verse 25, And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. The Lord knows how Peter has answered the question outside about the tax. And he comes to Peter, and he has words with Peter. Because Peter's thinking wrong. Peter's not ready to be unleashed upon the church. He's not ready. He needs more teaching. Because he answers questions in the wrong way about who Jesus is and what obligations Jesus is under. That's what we're going to find out. So first, Jesus puts to Peter, and you can see it, three quick questions in a row. What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Now, with this method of teaching... Our Lord is inviting Peter to think on some things he knows in order to come to a better understanding of things he does not know. So the questions from our Lord are questions about paying taxes or paying tributes to kings. Peter, do the earthly kings you know, do the earthly kings you know about collect taxes and tribute from their own sons or do they collect from other people? people outside their immediate family. Jesus is asking a question about identity and obligation, doesn't he? Do kings have to pay themselves taxes? Do sons of kings have to pay the king a tax? Who has to pay the king the tax? Well, Peter, of course, knows the answer. He's been around. He knows how this works. He gives the answer in verse 26. Kings collect from others, not from their own sons. The sons of kings, because the kingdom is theirs too, they do not pay taxes or tribute to their royal fathers. Peter can figure that out from observing the habits in the world. But then comes something that Jesus says 
that Peter could not figure out by observing the habits of kings in the world. Jesus says, I am a royal son. I am a royal son. This is what Jesus means when he says at the end of verse 26, then the sons are free. And he immediately goes into this brief exchange explaining that he will pay the tax even as a son, but he does not lawfully owe the tax. Peter thought he lawfully owed the tax. Jesus is teaching Peter, I don't owe the tax. Our Lord Jesus is the divine son of a divine king. And because the two drachma tax, or as it's called in the ESV, the half shekel tax, because this was for the temple service, it was a toll due to the divine father. Therefore, Jesus, being divine son, cannot be lawfully required to pay this tribute. Peter, of course, had just heard on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is earlier in this very chapter, he had just heard a voice from the cloud say, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The father speaking about the son. But then Peter came down the mountain. He came down the mountain, and his knowledge of Jesus as divine son quickly darkened and deteriorated under the pressures of worldly demands and worldly duties, and his mind relaxed into the common way of thinking that all other men think. Does that ever happen to your mind? Do you ever get just caught up in the current of business and duties and chores and fix that, call that person, pay that bill, eat another dinner, and your mind deteriorates and darkens into that common way of thinking. And you almost forget that you yourself are an adopted son of grace with great privileges at the right hand of God in Jesus Christ. Which all raises a very important question. What should Peter have said to the tax collectors? when they ask their question about, will Jesus pay? Because whatever he, well, we know what he said. It was deficient. According to Jesus, Peter's short answer, yes, revealed ignorance, not understanding. He needed a private lesson. He needed private tutoring from the master himself. What should Peter have said? Well, this is very simple. Peter should have said exactly what Jesus said to Peter, but he couldn't say it. Peter should have said, my teacher, as you call him, is not required to pay, for he is the divine son of the divine father whose temple this tax is supporting. To think he is lawfully required to pay is to unlawfully deny his place as divine son. Peter should have said that. We know it was Peter. Excuse me. We know it it is what Peter should have said because it is what Jesus said to Peter. 
So this is how we should really learn to read our Bibles. We know exactly how we should have been thinking about this because of what Jesus just corrected and how he just taught. But Peter didn't say it. And he didn't say it because he couldn't say it. He couldn't say it because his mind and his understanding had become dull, even though he had just recently been up on the Mount of Transfiguration, hearing the voice of the Father in the cloud saying, this is my son. Beloved, this is simply a testimony of how desperate we are in need of Jesus to teach us, or to use the phrase Paul uses, to be taught of God. Our mind will quickly fall into dissolution if we are not little beggars, hungry little students before the word of God. Over and over, we find passages like this one in the New Testament, where Jesus says the right thing, and the disciples say the wrong thing. They think they understand, and that's why they're so ready to speak. Remember when they chased away the little children? Parents were bringing their little children to Jesus, and it was the disciples, the brilliant, the excellent, the first-class disciples who said, get out of here with those kids. And what did Jesus say to his disciples? Well, the text actually says he was indignant. That's an above average level of anger. He was indignant with his disciples. Because according to their mind, the mind that they were quite comfortable in, the way they thought about everything Well, it feels like your favorite pair of jeans feel. It fits so well to you. And you get by with it in the world, the way you think about everything. But Jesus had to correct them because he was bringing them into his kingdom. And his kingdom is not simply a reflection of the kingdoms of men. It is an intrusion It is a foreign land. It is the difference between light and darkness. So we know what Peter should have said. And we really do feel it ourselves why he couldn't say it. Because we ourselves know how quickly we conform to the system of the world in the way we think about so many things because we are often so untaught by who the tax collectors call teacher. And then Peter gets special teaching. Beloved, you all, I, with you, we need a lot of special teaching. We need to go sit at our tutor's feet and learn his heart, his mind, his will. You cannot learn it by watching 10 hours of TV a day. You cannot learn it by doom scrolling on Twitter five hours a week. You cannot learn the mind of Jesus Christ in those venues. I'm not trying to chase you away from every venue of this world. I'm just trying to tell you, don't expect the divine mind to be discovered there. You must go to the word of God. You must go to the teacher of God, who is the Lord. 
So over and over, we find passages like this, where the disciples think they understand, they think they are religiously sound, but they are way off course, and Jesus must correct them. And sometimes he corrects them firmly, sometimes he corrects them gently, like he does here. And the wonder of it all is that Jesus Christ refuses to leave these disciples so unlearned, so confused, so mistaken, he refuses to leave them where they are. This is grace. He will apply to them the redemption he has accomplished for them. They won't. They don't know how to. They would see the redemption Jesus accomplished, and they would see the command to apply it, and they would probably throw it out with the recycling. He must bring it to them, to us. And how does he, of course, affect this wonderful learning that we all need? Well, he says in John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Peter wasn't even going to be maximally helped by this little tutoring session that he just had. He was going to need the Holy Spirit to be maximally helped by this teaching. And so he would wait until Pentecost. And then he would indeed remember, and the disciples would remember, and they would write it all down even under that power of remembrance. One more thing. I want you to notice with me in verse 26, the plural, the plural that our Lord Jesus uses at the end of that verse. He says, then the sons are free. Now at first, this plural usage of sons, it might appear to us as simply a proverbial expression about all the earthly sons of all the earthly kings. But then in verse 27, something wonderful and unforgettable happens. Jesus decides he will pay the temple tax, even though it is not lawfully required of him as divine son. But he will not just pay his part of the tax, he will pay Peter's part of the tax. And he will pay for both, not from the money they carry, but from miracle money, fish money, a shekel that will be found in the first fish, the mouth of the first fish Peter catches. So here's what happens. Jesus pays the tax for two men. He pays a debt that he does not owe himself. He says he does it to not offend the tax collectors. Now, he's going to eventually offend them much when he talks about the future of the temple. But this hour is not his hour. And so he doesn't offend them. He will pay a debt he does not owe. (coughs) But he also pays a debt Peter does not owe. And he pays from the same miracle money for Peter that he paid for his own. Our Lord is showing that Peter and all the disciples and all the believing church of God, all who are his brothers and his sisters, they are all sons with him of the king. And they really, in an important way, do not owe this world anything 
because we are sons of the king. But to not give offense, we will stoop and serve in this world. But the main point here is to see that Jesus says, is saying that Peter shares the status of son. And the Lord, of course, makes this very clear after his resurrection. When Mary is trying to cling to him in the garden, in John 20, verse 17, he says to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The simple truth is that Jesus is teaching his disciples that he who can draw money out of the mouths of fishes, he who has all power in the cosmos, is stooping so low, is stooping like a servant and paying the debts that are owed by other men. And of course, it is a testimony right here in the story of what he does on the cross of Jesus Christ. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. How can we pray such a thing? Because Jesus has made it known loud and clear to his church in passages like this one and others that he delights to pay other people's debts. It is his great zeal and joy to pay off his church's debts. To find that bride who is so filthy and wrecked and ruined because she is so in debt and to unite himself to her and call her bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and to assume all her debt in marriage and lay down his life to pay it all off so that she can rise with him into the fellowship of the sons of God. We sons by adoption he, the son by nature, one family under God, in God, in Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for reminding us that we have a Savior who is smarter than us, who is all light, in whom there is no darkness or shadow of turning who always thinks the right things, who always says the right things, who never needs to edit his words. Not so with us, O oh Lord. But we thank you that you have committed yourself to us. We thank you that even Peter, whom we have seen several times stumble, it is your pleasure, Lord Jesus, to continue to testify to him and all who are like him that you will pay our debts, that we are your brothers, that we are brought home to your Father through your mediation. Oh, gracious God, we thank you for this reminder tonight of how desperately we are in need of the teaching of Jesus. We pray that we would all do what we should to not continue to be unlearned Lord, we confess, even now, that if we do not know how to think after you, we are thinking after the world. 
Oh, Lord, we pray that you would continue to renew our minds and encourage us that even though we are sometimes full of follies and sometimes we trust our thinking more than we ought, we have a Savior who is persistent, who will indeed bring about in us the conformity that he has purchased for us upon the cross. In his name we give thanks and praise. Amen.